again, they this culturally, you just don't do that. I remember our very first time in the Middle East, we were there for a sabbatical for three weeks, and I was in Egypt, and we were in a in a fragrance that some Egyptian perfume is known around the world. They call it essence. And I remember, because um, I tend to, my mother's like this, and I tend to be a touchy-feely guy, and I'm we're, we're talking, and, and the lady there who's selling it, and I happen to reach out and touch her arm. And the, the, our guide looks at me and kind of goes, you, you, you ju- in the Middle East culture, you do not do that. You, you don't touch people, see, like that, unless you're related to them. I mean, unless they're family. And so here he kisses her. I mean, it, basically, love at first sight. Let me continue. Uh, down in verse 18. Jacob was in love with Rachel, man, immediately, and said, I'll work for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban says, it's better that I give her to you than to somebody else. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days because of his love for her. Isn't it interesting how uh, Moses, who's the one writing this, and by the way, he would not have been there, so how would Moses have known this information? Either oral tradition or special revelation, God told him. Somehow God just told him, kind of like how did he know the creation story? God revealed it to him. And so the Lord would have revealed to Moses as he's writing the Pentateuch uh, these episodes. And it's interesting how poetic it is that even though he worked seven years, it seemed like, boom, like nothing. And how love can distort. And that's a good thing and a bad thing, isn't it? So... What happens, remember, that he has this wedding. Look in verse 22. I'm reading from the New International Version, and it's interesting because, again, uh, scriptures are very discreet, but sometimes they, they have to use euphemisms. Laban brought together all the people of the place, gave a feast. When evening came, he took his daughter Leah, and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. It's interesting in other versions how it's, that's phrased. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant, and when morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel. Why have you deceived me? Isn't it interesting? The deceiver becomes deceived. Now watch this. First of all, how did that happen? How can you go to bed on your wedding night with somebody and it was your sister-in-law? Several ways. A, she would have been veiled. B, it would have been dark. C, he was probably liquored up. I mean, you just have to understand this is a completely different culture than our culture. But that said, nevertheless, he wakes up, and the person he thought he married, he was not married to. Let me say that again and see if you connect the dots. It dawns on you one day that the person you thought you were marrying is not who 
you thought you were marrying. Does that sound like any marriage you know? I think it's a biblical principle that you have in your mind these expectations on what you think your spouse is going to be like. And then one day it dawns on you that he or she isn't quite who you thought he or she was. If we can go to the next, well, it's going to be tough to see. Every marriage has its seasons of frustrations. Every marriage has its seasons of frustrations. And the reason for that is in 20th century America, our view of marriage is so different than the original intent of marriage. John, in your margin, an author by the name of Gary Thomas, some of you may have heard of Gary Thomas. He wrote uh, Sacred Marriage, Sacred Parenting, and Sacred Pathways. Excellent, excellent books. In Sacred Marriage, the tagline of the title of the book is this. What if God intended marriage for your holiness, not your happiness? You see, we have this view that marriage will make me happy. Where did that come from? That it that is not God's intention for marriage. Now, it's a byproduct. Let's look at the next screen. Jesse, there we go. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, 2, an interesting phrase that you think you know the meaning of this. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The way you've always interpreted that verse is because all of us have this compulsion uh, that this sex drive, uh, that, that we need to channel it in healthy ways, you need to get married. Marry rather than burn, Paul says. That is indeed what Paul means by that. However, there is a sec- there is a secondary application you've never considered. Since there is so much immorality in your wa- in your life, <laughs> boy, I'm glad Judy's not here. Since there is so much immorality in your life, God needed to bring your spouse into your life to beat it out of you. I'm going to look at the verse again. But since there is so much sin in your life, the remedy for that will be marriage. This is the whole premise of Gary Thomas's proposition. Marriage is for your holiness, not just simply your happiness. If you think, and this is why there's so much divorce in the world, if you think that getting married will make you happy, will make you happy, you're going to be one disappointed pup. Because God has a higher purpose than making you happy. Same thing that I'm a pastor, and I'm a middle child. And I've, sometimes I, I, get in, I get into danger because I want to make people happy. Well, you want to know what? That's what clowns do. 
And I'm not a clown. I'm a pastor. I'm a leader. And God says, look, my goal is not to make you happy. My goal is to make you holy. And out of holiness comes a sense of satisfaction and contentedness and joy. And isn't it interesting? The fruit of the Spirit did not speak of happiness. You see, and so when people try to pursue happiness... They have to keep going from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. I got to keep buying a boat and buying a snowmobile and, and, and doing this and doing that and finding a different person because they're searching for happiness. Next, next screen, please. Before we get into this illustration you've got here, let me read, notice your note outline, Romans 5. I want you to think of this passage in terms of marriage. We rejoice in our frustrations in our marriage because we know that frustration in marriage produces what? How will you ever learn to persevere unless you're frustrated? The primary way that God is going to teach you how to persevere will be through your marriage. Now, some people don't want to persevere. They would rather change partners. But because perseverance in verse 4, that develops what? Your character. And character will give you hope. And hope will not disappoint us, even though our spouse does, because God has poured out his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Look at Romans 8.29. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. God is not interested in you being comfortable. He's interested in you being conformable. When God knocked the Apostle Paul off his horse on the Damascus Road, he goes, Paul, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. And you're going to go through a lot of suffering, and you're going to go through a lot of sacrifice, and it's going to be hard. And the Apostle Paul did it, see? And the Apostle Paul talked in the book of Philippians about joy, and I've learned to be content, and all this kind of stuff. Isn't it interesting? If you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, it was nothing but com- it was it was not un- it was not comfortable at all. But Paul was being conformable, see. And the problem that we have as American evangelicals is that I, I pursue happiness and I pursue comfort, and that's going to boomerang and kick you in the rear end. Because my my highest pursuit should be to be conformable. And that brings us to this picture right here of this blacksmith. And notice you got the blacksmith, and you've got that hammer he's holding, and then you've got the sword or the, the, the little thing that's, that's he's beating on, and then you got the anvil. Let's mark it. Next screen. God is the blacksmith. Next screen. You, my friends, are the thing getting pounded on. Your marriage is the anvil upon which it occurs. And guess what the hammer is? Your mate. See? Your mate. And so what God, because there is so much immorality, because there is so much sin in your life, God says, what I'm going to do, I'm going to conform you. I'm going to conform this piece of metal 
into the image that I have in mind, and I'm going to use it upon the anvil of your marriage, and I'm going to use your spouse. Now, the funny thing is when God does that, we resist. See? Yeah, we we don't like that. A, it produces pain, and B, it produces frustration. Let me give you some examples. There's a gentleman by the name of uh, Bob Beal. He was originally on um, James Dobson's board of directors at Focus on the Family for many years, and he wrote a wonderful book. And I heard Bob Beal speak. I think he's up from this area. I think he, he, he was up in the thumb area originally. And he, this is what he did. He spoke at a college commencement of a large university, and he said, I am going to give you a five-word sentence that you have never heard before. And these five words, if you can wrap your arm around them, will revolutionize your life. These five words, you've never heard this sentence before, but the best thing I can say to you is if you understand the implications of these five words, it will change your life, it'll change your marriage, it will, it will change your perspective. And I'm thinking, I'm on the edge of my seat thinking, well, what are these five words? Just like you are. Here are the five words. Everybody is not like you. Now, I want you to think about that. Everybody is not like you. How can these people be protesting? I mean, I can't believe that. They go out there and they loot. Right? That's because everybody's not like you. How can people ever endorse Donald Trump? I mean, the way he acts, how can people ever endorse Nancy Pelosi? That's because everybody's not like you. You see, you have this illusion that everybody looks at life through the same filters you do. And you bring that into your marriage. That you think that your spouse is going to communicate like you. That their view on sex will be like yours. That their view on money will be like yours. But you've got to understand that, that he or she came from a, f- a family of origin that was totally different than yours. I, well, I was a city boy. I married a farmer's girl, a, a daughter, see? Judy came from a dairy farm. I grew up in the city. She grew up in the country, see? I had a mom who just hugged everybody. She had parents who were not demonstrative in that way. Well, so we both come into this marriage, and guess what? What you're going to do, you're going to have this this conflict of cultures. I remember the very first time we went grocery shopping. We go into this large grocery store. It was a Kroger's or whatever. And, of course, I get the, 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 the cart that's got the one wheel that's... And I'm pushing this along. I'll drive. So we're driving and we're going down the laundry detergent aisle, shopping together. Judy Hayes had taken me grocery shopping. Look at this. I've never seen this many kinds of olive oil before. Come on, let's go. Laundry detergent aisle. 
almost as if we were synchronized swimmers. I reach up to the right, and Judy reaches up to the left. I grab a box of Tide, and she grabs a box of Oxidol. Some of you remember that. We meet back at the cart, and I look at her, and I say to Judy, what, what are you doing? I'm buying laundry detergent? No, I, I, I get that, but um, why, why are you buying Oxidol? Well, it's got these little blue crystals that make brighter brights and whiter whites. And I, I understand that. Now watch this. Here's where I'm going to play. Here's where I will over-trump her ace. Tide is 29.3 cents per ounce. Oxidol, 32.4. You know what? I could almost hear a choir of angels on the next aisle going... Well done. <laughs> Judy's response? My mom uses Oxidol. Guess what we bought that day? Oxidol. Your mom uses Oxidol. That becomes representative of what I had to learn through my entire marriage. We came from a family, and this was one of the, and by the way, you've got a list of family rules. They were never written down. They were automatic. Everybody operates according to the family rules. Some of the family rules in your family may have been this, never make dad mad. That was one of ours. Don't work through conflict. Sweep it under the rug. That was my parents' marriage. Always buy the cheapest. Guilty as charged. Judy's set of family rules, they were much different. And by the way, you will instinctively obey these family rules whether you recognize it or not. Judy's family rules were the depth of your relationship will determine the value of the gift that you give at Christmas. So I'm buying my mother a fly swatter. Judy buys her mom this sweater. I mean, it was like a $50 sweater. Man. And so there was this conflict, see. I had to learn. I remember I thought it was being really <laughs> one year for our anniversary. At, you know, I'm, I, I just buy practical. <laughs> I bought her this space-age plunger. Well, now, wait a minute. It was a space-age plunger because we needed it. Well, not only that, but that wasn't the worst. I bought her a set of bathroom scales. <laughs> you know, I was going to say, somebody shoot me. That that was not my finest moment. I mean, she kind of looked at it like, hey, look at these bathrooms. They're digital. 
Yeah, that's right. Whoa. Oh, man. And so I'm, I've been on this journey uh, of learning the art of compromise. There is nothing wrong with the word compromise. Moral compromise there is. But you see, what I had to learn is that the way my family did it wasn't necessarily right. It was one way to do it. Because answer this, your spouse will view gift giving differently than you. You've heard of the five love languages. Minor words, physical touch. Guess what? As I've done dozens and dozens, probably hundreds of premarital counseling, guess what I have found out? When I do these love languages, rarely do people match on those things. Rarely do people match on their love languages. Words of affirmation, time, spending time together, serving the other person, physical touch, and gift giving. Those are the five love languages. So to Judy, gift giving meant nothing. So I, on our anniversary, I would give her, get her a card. You know, I spent five, you know, $7 or $8 on an anniversary card. That did not necessarily wet her whistle. I mean, that, she wasn't interested in it you know, because that's, that, that didn't mean anything. What she wanted me to do is pick up my clothes. Because at the laundry basket, what I tend to do is, is do that, and I don't rebound well. And so, in fact, I just called her last night. We're getting flooring put down in our basement this morning because it flooded. I think I told you that. The flooring guy's there, and she goes, well, you were in the doghouse a little bit earlier today. Wow, here I'm up in the thumb of Michigan. I'm already in the doghouse. How? Well, remember when you went and put the trim back? So we the flooring guy, you left all your tools on the floor. And so I had to go down there and put all your tools away. See, I don't pick up well. You don't want to go to my cabin right now. I don't, I don't, I don't do that well. Judy tends to be a neat nick. I tend to think if everybody stayed up until 2 o'clock in the morning, the world would be a better place. Judy's up having her devotions at the crack of dawn. Incidentally, how does this work in your relationship? It's going to cause you great frustration, but that is how God is going to develop your character. How do you think you're ever going to learn to be patient? unless you're driven to impatience. How do you think you will ever learn to persevere unless you get frustrated with your spouse? How will you ever learn to forgive unless your spouse deeply hurts you? See? That is the arena in which we discover character. Next, please. Oh, I can hardly read it. Coming to, I probably used, needed to use a different font. Coming to terms with an imperfect spouse is a process that will require you to have a quiet trust in God himself. The irony is Rachel, or Jacob loved Rachel, but Rachel could not have children. Leah could have children, but she was unloved by Jacob. So you've got this interesting dynamic that's occurring. Leah, 
desperately wants to be loved by her husband. Look at verse 32. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, and by the way, these are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember? For she said, it is because, and I want you to underline the phrase, the Lord has seen. Why am I having you underline that? That's what the word, the name Reuben means. Remember, names to Jews are a big deal. It's because the Lord has seen my misery. Watch. Surely my husband will love me now. This will do it. This will make him love me. If I do this, if I buy her that, if I do this, then she will love me. Verse 33, she conceived again, meaning apparently it didn't work. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord has heard. Would you underline that phrase? You know what that is in in Hebrew? Simeon. Because the Lord has heard that I am not loved. Not only has God seen I'm not loved, now he's heard. I'm going to name this one Simeon. She keeps trying. Verse 34. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last, my husband will what? Yeah. Underline that phrase, will become attached. That is the word Levi in Hebrew. Because I have borne him three sons. You see, what she is doing, Leah is trying to find fulfillment from her husband. If you try to find fulfillment in your spouse, you will be sorely disappointed. Your spouse was never intended to do that. You are putting an expectation on him or her that it is impossible to fulfill because ultimately your fulfillment needs to be in whom? In the Lord. But we think, and part of that has to do with you got to continue to cultivate your relationship with the Lord. We think, and that becomes the curse of the, of the child-centered home. I will put all of my eggs in the basket of my kids because they're the ones that will bring me fulfillment. And you do anything for your kids, see? Or I will try to find fulfillment in my husband or my wife. And what's going to happen? They're going to disappoint you. Now what do you do, see? That's what Leah was doing. Verse 35. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will what? Underline that phrase. Do you know what the Hebrew word is for praise the Lord? Judah. As in the Lion of Judah. So she named him Judah. Look at the last sentence. And Leah stopped doing that.
This time, I have come to the conclusion that I cannot put the expectation on my spouse to totally meet all of my needs. And so I've got to adjust my expectations. I'm going to say something to you right now that you're not going to agree with. In fact, it's going to be really controversial. But I think I'm right on this thing. Having God alone is not enough. Now, before you push back, let me explain. In the Garden of Eden, God created Adam and Eve, correct? And it was good. And it was good. And behold, it was, it was evening and morning, a third day, and God created the sun, and it was evening and morning. Isn't it interesting? It doesn't say it was morning and evening. Go back to Genesis. It always says it was evening and morning. See, if I asked you what, it, what is a day, you would say morning, noon, and night. That's not correct. By the way, when does a day start for a Jew? Sundown. Well, that's goofy. No, that's biblical. Genesis 1, God determines days by evening and morning. And God said it was evening. He made the sun, and he made the stars, and he made the firmament, and he made the animals, and he made the plants, and he made kangaroos, and he made flamingos, and... And then he made man. He goes, and it was very good. And then for the very first time, God declares something that is not good. What was it? It is not good that man shall be alone. Now, just a second. Sin had not entered the world. That doesn't happen until Genesis 3. We're still in Genesis 2. Adam has a perfect relationship with God a perfect relationship with the planet, a perfect perfect relationship with the animals which he has named. He is in a perfect setting, and it's still not good enough. Wait a minute. So even if you have a perfect relationship with God, it's not good enough? Apparently not. God said it's not good the man be alone. You see, you you need someone else. But the flip side of that is you can't put all your eggs in that basket either. That's what Leah tried to do. So there there needs to be this relationship with God horizontal or, or vertically, and also this relationship with my spouse horizontally. It takes both. I'm going to let you get your arms around that a little bit because you're processing really hard. Number three, I think I can see it better on this screen. Number three, Jesse, here we go. Mature love chooses to place one's love and affections on another person in spite of his or her flaws, faults, and weaknesses. Now, I'm going to show you something that's very Interesting, very unusual that you've probably never seen or heard before. Watch this. 
If you look at the text of Genesis 29:17, note, I think I've got it printed there for, for you, do I not? Yeah. Okay, here we go. On the screen. Next one, Jesse. Here we go, dude. Leah, Genesis uh, 29:17. This is the New International Version. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. It's interesting. It's one of the few times in the Bible that a female is described in sensual terms. One of the other times was King David. He said he was extremely handsome. Leah had weaknesses. She had weak eyes. However, next screen, please. The New Revised Standard Version says Leah's eyes were lovely. Well, wait a minute. I thought she had cross-eyed. I thought she had weak eyes. The New American Standard. Next screen. Leah's eyes were weak. But, in contrast to that, Rachel was beautiful of form and face. The New Living. Leah had pretty eyes. But Rachel was beautiful in every way, with a lovely face and shapely figure. Isn't it interesting how these different translations operate? So let me ask you a question. What is it? Did Leah, was Leah pretty homely? And had weak eyes and just cross-eyed and or did she have beautiful eyes? You're gonna be surprised by the answer. It can be translated either way. That's why they wrestle with the translation. The Hebrew can be and, and the, by the way, it's not a it's not a matter of uh, conservative scholarship versus liberal scholarship. The Hebrew phrase and idiom can be translated either way. That's why you see the different translations like that, which almost seem the opposite. Listen to this. God did that purposefully. God did that on purpose. You want to know why? Listen. Jacob, you've got a choice. You can choose to look at her and focus on weakness. Or you can choose to look at her and see something else. And beloved, you and I are given the same choice. You know what? You, you, you did not marry a perfect person. And how much of our time is spent on fault finding and criticism and looking at his or her weaknesses or saying, Boy, I wish she were more like that person. I wish he was more like this. That's a wrong perspective. Mature love. And by the way, Jacob was able to do this. To his credit, he stayed married to Leah. He still had the trophy wife. But guess what? When Rachel died, she was buried in Bethlehem. You can go. I've been there before. It's called Rachel's tomb. Leah dies, buried with the family. Jacob got it. He recognized, you know what? 
okay, I married somebody. I didn't know who this person was. But through this, all this stuff, the ups and the downs, I've learned that she's my girl. Interesting quote. Let's go to the next screen, and we'll close with this. You can't read it. I'll just read it to you. If I can. We have come to see that there is little difference between couples who divorce and those couples who make their marriages work. The illusion of incompatibility is indeed a myth. The one difference, however, is that some people persist in their covenant, not only for better, but also for worse. And they do so trusting that even the hardest times will yield the fruit of righteousness. Interesting, statistically, those who divorce and those who stay married, they found little difference in those marriages, except one set of couples say, says, we're going to persist. We're going to keep going. Not that it's perfect, but I'm going to choose not to focus on his weaknesses, but to see them through the eyes of love. Let's pray. Father, we've had a lot of information this morning, and it's been hard. We want to thank you for this person that you have given to us. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to learn how to forgive. You'll help us to learn, and it's only through your Holy Spirit that we can discover the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, not snapping, not retaliating, not pulling the silent treatment, not always correcting. Lord, it's easy to slip into the Martha syndrome. Make my sister do this. how we want your spirit to change the other person rather than, Lord, change me. I pray, Lord, for marriages that are inside this tent of meeting that are at risk. There are people here today, I'm sure, that are just a hiccup away from calling it quits. I pray, Lord, that you'd reach down and do the work that only you can do. Thank you that in spite of the man, the fact that this man, Jacob, was a scoundrel, he showed some class at the end of his life. And rather than having just the beautiful girl on his arm, he toughed it out. 
with the other.